Okay, I want to talk today about the mom who called the police on her son. Her son was 14 years old. She called the police on her son because he had a tendency towards violence. He was trying to acquire a firearm, and he had written in his journal about planning a massacre, a school shooting, and she'd caught him watching videos of mass shooters, and she actually took action. She called the police. So I want to talk all about this today, but before before we get to that, I want to talk just for a second about Elon Musk. So for those of us uh, avidly waiting for Elon Musk to take the reins of Twitter. It's um, emotionally, <laughs> it's an emotional thing to watch this back and forth between Elon and Twitter because Elon Musk, of course, they, they he signed this agreement, this acquisition, this merger agreement with Twitter. The Twitter board said, okay, cool, thumbs up, you can, you can acquire us. And then Elon said, but wait a second, I think you're giving me the wrong information. I think you're lying because you say that less than 5% of active users on Twitter are bots, are robots. And Elon said, I don't think that's true. And if it's not true, then your valuation, the amount I agreed to pay you is incorrect um, because you're, you're, you're giving value to, to bots as if they're real people. And Twitter's been super shady about this, super vague. They're obviously lying about how many active users are actually bots. They won't give him the data. And so Elon said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go through with this. I want to cancel the deal. And he, he actually is willing to walk away. He said he was walking away. And so Twitter, in response to this, hired a bigwig law firm that specializes in merger law. And they say they're going to sue Elon Musk and force him to go through with this merger because he'd already agreed on it. And Elon said, you know, bring it on. Go ahead and sue me. And a lot, of, a lot of the headlines that you'll see are saying, you know, the deal is off. Elon Musk is no longer going to buy going to buy Twitter. It's just going to spiral, go down, go down the chute in a bunch of legalities, a bunch of litigation. And I actually think that that's wrong. I think that this deal will still go through. I think Elon Musk will acquire Twitter. And the reason for that is that Twitter is obviously lying. They are obviously not being honest about the number of bots that are on their service and the percentage of their total user base that are real people versus bots. They're obviously lying about this. So I don't even think that this is going to go to court. I don't think that this will be litigated. I think that this was a negotiating tactic on Twitter's part to hire this law firm and to announce publicly that they've hired this law firm. But I am not convinced that this will ever actually be litigated because since Twitter is obviously lying, what do they not want? They don't want their lying to be exposed. And if this goes, if this actually does go to court, then Elon Musk will be granted discovery. And in discovery, it will, well, it will be discovered that Twitter is lying here. So I'm not convinced that this is actually going to go to court. I consider this to be a very small bump in the road. When when Elon said that he wanted to acquire Twitter and then Twitter board went back and forth a little bit, you know, they 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 tried to prevent it, but then they agreed on it because it's their fiduciary duty. I knew that there would be something that happened between now and October, which is the deadline for this, this acquisition to go through. I knew there would be something, something that would happen that would be a bump in the road, that would be a hurdle to overcome. And if this is it, if this little, if this little um, fight, this little back and forth is it, then it's really not that big of a deal. Because maybe to us, as everyday Americans, the idea of a lawsuit, of someone hiring a law firm, of going to court, seems like the end of something. This is this is an enormity. But in the corporate world, this is just like what you do on a Friday. You take somebody to court. This is just how you negotiate and how you hammer out, especially high-dollar business deals. This is actually no big deal in corporate America. Um, and the negotiation tactic that that Elon Musk used 
saying, I'll walk away, I don't want this anymore, that is a negotiation tactic. It's actually a very powerful negotiation tactic. It's one that Donald Trump used a lot and that he was very successful using. Uh, an actual willingness to walk away makes it not a bluff when you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm not gonna do this deal unless you, unless you adhere to some of, the, some of the standards that I want in this deal. And Elon Musk, this is, in my opinion, a negotiating tactic by Elon Musk. And I think Elon actually confirmed this because on Twitter this week, um, after, after, after he said he wasn't going to buy Twitter, that he was backing out and Twitter announced that they were going to sue him to try to force him to, they were going to try to force him to go through with it. He posted this meme. It's a meme of his own face. And the meme says, they said I couldn't buy Twitter. Then they wouldn't disclose bot info. Now they want to force me to buy Twitter in court. Now they have to disclose bot info in court. And obviously the, the, the trajectory of the meme is his face laughing harder and harder and harder. This was 3D chess. Elon just outmaneuvered Twitter. It just hasn't come fully to fruition here. Elon posted another meme. It's a picture of Chuck Norris and the tweet underneath it says, Chuck mate. Elon knew what he was doing all along and this acquisition will still go through. This is not, this is not done. Twitter will be owned by Elon Musk by the fall, mark my words. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. All right, if you're like me, then you are growing more and more concerned about the future. That's why I like American Hartford Gold. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. Interest rates are skyrocketing. Market experts like Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of JP Morgan, not only predict that we will face a recession, they're using terms like economic hurricane and unprecedented. If you want to protect your future, do what I did. Call the only precious metal dealers that I trust, American Hartford Gold. They can show you how to protect your savings and your retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they will have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or perhaps inside your IRA or 401k. And they make it easy. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 866-781-7499. The phone number is 866-781-7499. Or if you prefer text messaging, you can text my name, Liz, to 65532. Again, the phone number is 866-781-7499. Or you can text Liz to 65532. Okay, so before we get into the mass shooting stuff and this mom who turned her son in because she thought he was potentially a school shooter, the, the most hilarious headline that I have seen all week is out of Texas. There was a woman in Texas who was uh, pulled over on the highway because she was in the, she was in the carpool lane the cop pulled her over and said, ma'am, you know, you have to have more than one person in the car. You have to have a passenger if you're going to drive in the carpool lane. And, you know, where's your passenger? And he looks around her car and her car is empty except for her. And she points to her pregnant belly and says, this is my passenger. <laughs> and uh, which I think is hilarious. And this woman, her name, by the way, is Brandy Batone. Um, and, and, and she says this to the cop and the cop says, ah, uh, sorry, ma'am, that doesn't, that doesn't count. And she invokes Roe v. Wade. She says, you know, not to be political about all of this, but, uh, because of the recent ruling Roe v. Wade, I think my unborn child counts as a person. And I think you shouldn't issue me this ticket. And he did issue her the ticket. She said she's going to fight it in court. The ticket was $275. 
Unfortunately, her court date is July 20th, which is just about the same time as her due date. Um, And here's what I say to this. First of all, I don't know if she thought of this ahead of time and this was her plan. I don't know if she thought of this on the fly. If she thought of this on the fly, that makes this about 10 times funnier because there are some pretty funny, anybody who has a friend or a family member who's a cop, or maybe you're a cop yourself, there are some pretty darn funny excuses that people get when they get pulled over to try to get out of of tickets, but this ranks right up there with one of the funniest ones that I've ever heard. And here's the thing, the left was making headlines about this, especially on Twitter, um, talking, talking about how this is a gotcha for conservatives. And the left is completely missing the point. I think this is awesome. If we can trade, if we can trade the idea that the left would actually admit, acknowledge that an unborn baby is a person, give that baby personhood in exchange for pregnant ladies being allowed to drive in the carpool lane, deal. You have got yourself a deal and the funniest deal that I've, the funniest deal that I've ever heard. So I, I personally hope that she, that she gets out of it. I guess transportation law in Texas or transportation code, it's not law, doesn't recognize unborn children as people. Um, but the Texas penal code does. So there's an interesting, an interesting legal conundrum for all you, you nerds and geeks out there who are wondering how will this actually legally end up? Who's to say, but we should follow along with this because this is awesome. So kudos to Brandy and best of luck to you. I think that this is, this is, as I said, the most enjoyable news story that I've read all week. You win that. On the more serious end of things, um, pretty heavy stuff, but this, this is, this article actually gave me the chills. This was from the Wall Street Journal, and it's about a mom who called the police on her son because she suspected that her son, he's 14 years old, was planning a school shooting or another mass shooting. And I want to read you just a little piece of this article. This is what they write at the Wall Street Journal. Even on the day that Elena Vasquez reported her 14-year-old son to police, the enormity of the decision hadn't fully hit her. She told an officer who came to her apartment that she believed her son would hurt people, likely at school. He had a growing obsession with guns and violence, and she had discovered him watching videos of school shootings. He'd been in trouble for making threats at school and bringing in a pocket knife. A teacher had overheard him telling his classmates how to construct pipe bombs. He'd had an angry outburst earlier that day, which was in September of 2019. The article goes, officers searched her son's bedroom where they found his journal, later detailed in an arrest warrant. He wrote of committing a massacre, calling it destiny. He made threats about killing his mother, her boyfriend, and students and staff at an Oklahoma City school where he once attended classes. He listed he would live or die. He wrote that he then would kill himself. Also, side note, um, interesting to note here, what are two of the factors, or what is one of the factors, really, that we have discussed on this show as always, always being constant every time that there is a young person, especially a young man who commits an act of violence like a mass shooting, a broken family, a broken family. So this article doesn't, explicitly address that, but implicitly they tell us that this kid came from a broken family because he made threats about killing his mother, her boyfriend. Well, that means his parents are not are not a married mother and father, um, and they are not. They are not. The article goes on to say, police took her son to a hospital for a mental health evaluation after Ms. Vesquez, a 42-year-old call center manager, signed an emergency order deeming him a danger. Deeming him a danger. Ms. Vasquez, the Wall Street Journal says, shivers at the thought of missing something in her son's case. Her son, she said, has spent much of his life in counseling since he started showing signs of emotional problems at age three. She said he was hospitalized at seven after trying to jump out of a moving car. More recently, she said, he has had angry blowups and punched holes in walls. He wanted a gun, Ms. Vasquez told police, but she refused to buy him one. Although he didn't have weapons to carry out an attack when she notified the police, she said she worried he might meet others who could help. And by the way, 
You'll notice the difference here between this woman and the parents of some of the other mass shooters that that have committed their atrocities. Those parents have facilitated their 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 children or their their young adult children's um, their young adult children's desire and intent to commit this act. They've actually purchased a gun or signed off on 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 a legal paper that would allow their minor child to obtain a gun on his or her own. Um, this mother did not. This mother, as as you will see, this mother is is a hero. She made the most horrible decision, faced the most horrible decision that you would ever have to face as a parent. Um, this child that you that you grew inside you and you birthed and you nurtured and you loved and you raised. Now you have to turn them into law enforcement for the good of themselves, for the good of your family and the good of the community. I can't imagine facing this, but this woman did, and she said. Um, her son, who is now back with his mother, said in an interview that at the time his journal was found, he was angry with his life, including poor progress in therapy, a tough childhood in poverty, a sense of being abandoned by his mother, and being bullied in school. He wasn't consistently taking medication for his mental health at the time, he said, and his paranoia was through the roof. As for focusing on mass shooters, he called it a passing interest. He said he doesn't believe his mother needed to involve the police and is still unhappy that she did so. The journal found by police, detailed in the arrest warrant, contained depictions of violent scenes, such as people hiding under tables in a schoolroom to escape a shooter, a pledge to wreak more havoc than Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh, and an entry calling the anniversary of the Columbine School Massacre a day of celebration. This is a direct quote from what he wrote. I want to kill and get vengeance on humanity, the government administration, and the other kids. I have few equals. I hate them all. I've been betrayed. This world doesn't deserve me. They'll see. They'll all see. End quote. This is the sad part. So when his mother realized that this was, that her child had mental and emotional um, problems, that he wasn't taking his medication, that he was growing increasingly more violent, that he was, he was um, obsessed with mass shooters and mass killers, and that he was writing these things in his journal about committing an act himself, she called the police and the police took him for a, a mental health evaluation. And this is what the article says. Ms. Vasquez had hoped that contacting the police would help her, would help get her son long-term residential mental health care, something she had difficulty doing. Her son has a separate medical issue, she said, and facilities told her they didn't have the staff to address his needs. Instead, she said, he received short-term inpatient care. He also received a felony charge for planning an act of violence. Here's the thing. This young man did not go to prison. He was not convicted on this felony charge. The charge was actually dropped. It was dropped because he did community service and wasn't a problem um, while he was while he was doing this community service. And um, he says now he was 14 at this time. He says now that he wants a gun when he turns 18, and perhaps he'll be able to obtain that because he had no prior commitment um, and no prior involuntary commitment and no prior conviction of this felony charge because they didn't charge him because he he did his community service. And this is where this is where things get really messy because it's 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 one thing to deal with this when we're talking about minors. It's another thing to deal with this when we're talking about adults. It's also part of this discussion that we've been having and conservatives have had to be had to play defense a little bit on the red flag discussion because the Democrats' definition of a red flag law 
obviously leaves due process in the dust and defines things that aren't actually a threat of violence as potentially being a threat of violence. Like if you are a Trump supporter, if you like guns, if you post pictures of yourself at the shooting range, they try to demonize anybody that they don't agree with or anybody who is a conservative or a Second Amendment supporter. You and I know that red flags um, aren't as the left defines them. The true red flags are um, anything from a broken family to use of violent video games to SSRIs to marijuana to animal abuse to social isolation. All, all of these different factors uh, almost always exist in the background. Serious mental health issues exist, diagnosed or not. Sometimes the symptoms are just there. It hasn't officially been diagnosed. All of these factors are generally present in individuals that commit that commit mass murder. And so the, the left's definition of red flags and the right's definition of red flags are, are very different. And so we have to add to this conversation about red flags. What do we do as a nation and a community when someone like this young man is likely to commit violence, who has a serious mental health issue, who is agitated and has outbursts punching through the wall, who is trying to acquire a gun, who is obsessed with mass shooters, and who writes in his journal that he wants to commit a massacre. What do we do? What do we do to prevent this from happening? Now, this woman, his mother, did exactly the right thing. She's, in fact, a hero for having done what she did. She very possibly, very likely protected and defended her community against another mass shooting. So she did the right thing, for sure. But in the larger sense, what do we as a society do about these people? Because this is not an isolated incident. There exist among us young men specifically who show all the red flags, who have all the signs, who after they commit an act of violence, everyone who's ever known them or been associated with them say, well, yeah, that doesn't surprise us because you know they had all the signs. What do we do? It's time for our country to have a serious conversation about involuntary commitment. Now, I like Bambi, and I think you will too, because small business owners, have you had an issue before with employee attendance? Have you had an employee altercation in the workplace? Have you ever had employee performance issues? Have you ever stressed about navigating through HR compliance, which I think we all can agree is a total nightmare? The bad news is that one complaint against your company can turn your whole world upside down. The good news is Bambi is there to help small business owners implement good HR practices. Bambi is an HR platform built for businesses just like yours, so you can automate the most important HR practices and get your own dedicated HR manager. First, Bambi's HR autopilot automates your core policies like workplace training and employee feedback. Then, your dedicated HR manager will help you navigate the more complex parts of HR and guide you to compliance. They are available by phone, by email, or real-time chat, now, as you know, an in-house HR manager can cost up to $80,000 a year, but with Bambi, your dedicated HR manager starts at just $99 a month. No hidden fees. You can cancel anytime. You run your business, let Bambi run your HR. Go to Bambi.com slash Liz right now for your free HR audit. It's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash Liz. Bambi.com slash Liz. So involuntary commitment. I... Had I had a very long conversation about this um, in preparation for the show with with my executive producer because my my first inclination towards the idea of involuntary commitment is absolutely not my first inclination my first emotional reaction is I I feel very libertarian about it I feel very 
Um, I feel very much like, why would I trust government officials who have weaponized the power of the federal government and the state government and the local government against you and I based on our conservative or our conservative political beliefs or our Christian religious beliefs? Why would I trust those people not to abuse their power if we allow the government to involuntarily commit people based on the government's assessment of our mental health status? I thought, how is this different from red flag laws? This is my initial reaction. And so let me take you through what I have spent half the day working on because when I started digging into the data and the studies and the legalities of involuntary commitment, what I found somewhat changed my mind. And the biggest difference, by the way, in answer to my original question, how is involuntary commitment or how could it be different than red flag laws, red flag laws that we don't support because they violate due process, that right there is the difference. Due process of law. Because red flag laws trample on due process. They deprive you of due process based on an allegation from a family member or a friend or a coworker or, you know, a political enemy. And involuntary commitment, if it is done correctly and legally, it does not deprive you of due process. You are not involuntarily committed without multiple layers of um, the court adjudicating your case. So that's sort of the short answer to that. There's also a big distinction between unelected bureaucrats in the executive branch of the government, you know, the swamp, the administrative state, um, and the court system. So to put this concretely, there's a big difference between a Biden administration, ATF, bureaucrat deciding whether you can own a gun or not based on your social media posts on Facebook about Donald Trump or about, you know, the last time you went to the shooting range. There's a difference between that and between a, a family court judge um, determining the need for inpatient psychiatric treatment um, of individuals who have demonstrated, demonstrated serious mental illness and perhaps a propensity to hurt themselves or others. Now, you might say in response to that, well, sure, but we've seen even judges in our court system abuse their power. And the case that came to my mind earlier was um, in Cincinnati, Ohio, my hometown, there was a judge that, that, that removed custody of a 17-year-old girl from her parents because the girl wanted to be trans. And the parents said, no, not until you're 18, not while you're under our roof. And the judge removed custody of that girl um, from the parents and gave custody to someone who would facilitate the, the the transing of this girl. And so maybe your reaction was the same as mine. Maybe you thought, okay, the court system, but how do we prevent corrupt judges from applying their arbitrary opinions on these matters on people? And the answer to that is there's no foolproof way. No system of government is perfect. Even, even, our governments, even, even our free market economy, for example, capitalism isn't perfect. It's just the least bad of all the economic systems. And that's true here too. There is no way in the world to prevent 100% of the time, prevent people from sinning, from acting with bad intentions, from harming their fellow man. There's no way to eradicate that from humanity. If there was, then we are thousands of years too late on implementing whatever that might be that could thoroughly, thoroughly obliterate sin here on earth. But there's no way to do that. So what we do instead is we set up a system of government that is the least likely to allow for human sin to manifest. And then we set up layers of accountability or layers of recourse so that when inevitably 
somebody in our government does abuse their power, does sin, their, 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 their human nature, um, or the bad part of their human nature manifests from their position of power, that, that the person who is harmed is able to have some recourse. And so there is no way foolproof, there's no foolproof way to prevent a particular judge from, from abusing their power. But there is a way to set up an appeals process so that if someone was harmed unfairly and unjustly, that they have that they have the recourse. And it is, it is the least bad of all the ways. There is, what we have here is, is we essentially have competing interests, right? We have due process and we have an interest in due process, of course, you are my interest. We also have an interest in preventing government abuse. We have an interest in protecting our individual rights. And we also have an interest in protecting our communities. And you have to find the proper push and pull of all these interests so that each is protected to the maximum amount and compromised the least amount possible. Um, now, involuntary commitment, where does that come in? How does this, how do we do this in a way that would maximize due process, that would prevent government abuse, that would protect our individual rights, and that would also assist us in protecting our communities from individuals with serious mental health issues who are a threat to themselves or others and, and, and could, if left unaddressed, commit violence against our communities. Well, to, to map this out properly, we kind of have to go back to what involuntary commitment has been in our nation. This is what, I, this is what I've spent the day doing, <laughs> um, unraveling this. So the reason we used to have, we used to have asylums, right? We used to have involuntary commitment all the time here in the United States. And in the 1960s and 70s, we, um, we stopped doing that. We faced the deinstitutionalization of our country where there were Supreme Court cases that said, you know what, we're going to raise the standards for how somebody can be involuntarily committed. And it made it so, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who otherwise would have been involuntarily committed were not anymore. Um, you can look at the homeless crisis on, on the streets of the big cities in our country, and you can see where some of these people who were otherwise in mental institutions, where, where they ended up. You can look in prisons to see where the rest of the people who were in uh, mental institutions, where they ended up. Um, but we decided as a country at the time, our Supreme Court did, that we would rather have um, seriously mentally ill people um, as homeless in the streets or in prison versus in mental health institutions. And the reason for this was because there was incredible abuse that was happening in these mental health institutions, abuse by government officials, and it, it was really horrendous. So this, this was a well, this deinstitutionalization was actually a well-intentioned policy, something that um, I certainly would have been tempted at the time to be supportive of, given how rampant and how horrendous the abuse that was being inflicted on mentally ill people in these institutions was. Um, so, so something that happens with good intentions doesn't mean that the ramifications of that will also be good. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what happened here. When we deinstitutionalized our country, it had incredibly bad, incredibly dangerous, incredibly sad results in, in our country. Now, the other thing here, before we move into, before we move into how to reform that and what we ought to do, um, when it comes to youth, it's very important to note that there is a big difference between involuntarily committing an adult over the age of 21 or a parent involuntarily committing a minor. Minors, as, as we all know, no child can make a decision for themselves. They are not cognitively 
um, capable of doing that. That's why parents make decisions for children. And so a parent can make a choice on behalf of their child to involuntarily commit them. And um, you can think it's a good idea. You can think it's a bad idea. Parents have very wide leverage to make decisions about their own children. Really, they can they can choose to make any kind of decision for their child, good or bad, unless and until it rises to um, the level of abuse. It's at that point that the state says, okay, you have violated your, your parental rights and we are going to step in. So it is a very different question talking about whether we're talking about minors, like, like, like this guy, this, this young man that the Wall Street Journal was writing about. He was 14 years old. His mother should have had every right to involuntarily commit him, um, especially to get the mental health care that he needed. That's very different than, than, um, an adult who, should have the agency to make their decisions for themselves. The other part of this is it's a little bit of a gray area, I think, when you're talking about due process with people who um, are discussing mass shooters, who are obsessed with watching mass shootings, who are even writing in the privacy of their own bedroom, in their own journal about wanting to commit a murder. There, it's, a, it's a little bit of a gray area because that's not actually the commission of a crime. Um, but what it and, and we don't want to we don't want to preemptively institutionalize or arrest someone if we just think that they're likely to commit a crime. However, however, there are laws on the books right now and rightly so against making terroristic threats or there are laws about planning to commit a crime as long as it's a, a credible threat that that crime would be committed. So, you know, th this kid writing in his journal, you might think, well, he's writing in his own journal, you know, is is, is nothing sacred is are you, can you be convicted of a crime charged with a felony based on, based on what you write in the journal? And the answer to that is yes, if you have a search history that's showing that you are researching how to commit this crime, if you are telling friends or family overhears you planning how to commit this crime, if you're trying to acquire a firearm to commit this crime, if there is the intent to commit this crime, then that, that qualifies as a credible threat. And there are laws in the books against making a credible threat of violence, especially one that's, that's a terroristic type of threat. So due process when it comes to um, red flags and red flags the way that we on the right would define them, um, don't mistake that for having to wait until someone has begun to commit a crime. There are already laws in the books that say you are not allowed to, to plan a crime. As long as the intent is there and you can prove it, you are allowed and should prosecute someone to the fullest extent if they are planning to do this. Now, two things that are really important to me online are safety and privacy. That's why I like Incogni. Thousands of companies are collecting, aggregating, and trading your personal data without you knowing anything about it. Creepy, right? The good news is you have the right to request data brokers to delete what information they have about you and protect your privacy. The bad news is it would take you years to do it manually. The best news is, is Incogni can do the messy work for you automatically. Incogni helps you protect your privacy and take your personal data off the market by reaching out to data brokers on your behalf, requesting your personal data removal, and dealing with their objections. Most often, by the way, these data brokers hold your name, your email, your home address, your phone number, the names of your relatives even, your social security number, your employment history, your shopping habits. It's really creepy. Like I said, you need Incogni. I love it. I know you will too. The first 100 people to use my URL, it's incogni.com slash Liz Wheeler, and use my promo code Liz Wheeler, get 20% off Incogni. Protect your privacy today. Go to incogni.com slash Liz Wheeler and use code Liz Wheeler to take your personal data off the market. Today's video is sponsored by Incogni. Okay, so some version of involuntary confinement is necessary in, in, in our society. 
it, that simply is the fact of the matter. We had involuntary confinement um, up until the 1960s and 70s, where at which time we faced this deinstitutionalization because of exposure of, of abuse. We also we also had good advances. We had the development of psychiatric drugs that helped a lot of these people um, be able to manage manage their lives, even even when facing these serious mental health issues. Um, and we also had a government policy that disincentivized states from institutionalizing people because Medicaid would not pay for inpatient psychiatric beds. So they would only pay for outpatient treatment. So uh, on a purely uh, financial financial incentive scale, um, hospitals and institutions were disincentivized from institutionalizing people. They were, they were incentivized to get them out of there as quickly as possible if they wanted to be reimbursed by Medicaid. So what happened in the face of this is the number of uh, psychiatric beds, public psychiatric beds in the United States dropped by over 95% between the years 1955 and 2016. We have 5% of the number of psychiatric beds that we did in the 1950s. And um, we didn't offer any community-based alternatives to, to this, this influx of these mental health patients that suddenly were let out of institutions. Um, states didn't step up to the plate and create any. So what did we face? What happened when, when, we, when we faced this deinstitutionalization? Well, Amy Swearer at the Heritage Foundation did a deep dive, a research study into this. And what she found is truly shocking. It's, it's something that people don't talk about when we talk about mental health care and violence and the correlation between serious mental health issues and, and violence. And I want to read to you a little bit of what she wrote. She wrote, several studies have found that having fewer psychiatric beds is associated with higher crime rates, including for violent crimes such as murder and assault. There are also strong indications that the dramatic rise in violent crime during the 1980s and 1990s was in large part an effect of deinstitutionalization and the massive influx of individuals with untreated mental illness back into their communities. She said, meanwhile, the equally sudden decline of crime rates in the 1990s and 2000s can be explained in large part by the reinstitutionalization of these individuals into jails and prisons. One study, she says, regarding the relationship between serious mental illnesses, we're talking bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. We're not talking about gen everyday anxiety and depression. She said, one study concluded that once gender, age, socio-demographic, and socioeconomic status are taken into account, the overall risk for physical assault is generally estimated to be three to five times higher for those with major mental illness than that of the general population. At least 20 different studies have found a positive relationship between psychotic delusions and violence especially when those delusions involve paranoid beliefs about persecution and exaggerated perceptions of threat risks or involve command hallucinations in which voices inside their heads command them to commit violent acts. And while mental illness, she writes, in general may have a limited relationship to violent crime in general, studies in both the United States and the international community routinely suggest that individuals with untreated schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are responsible for a disproportionate number of violent crimes and for roughly 10% of murders in particular. 10%. That number floored me. She said, although it's estimated that only one in 300 persons with schizophrenia will kill someone, research suggests that individuals with schizophrenia commit homicide at a rate 20 times greater than that of the general population. 20 times greater. And yet we just ignore this. We just, we, we 
maybe did something that we felt was necessary in the 1960s and 70s, given the abuse in these mental institutions, but what did we offer instead? Nothing. We offered nothing instead. We offered this, this cultural narrative that encouraged us to destigmatize mental illness, which is fine if, if you're talking about somebody's willingness to, to tell a doctor or to tell a family member or to tell a friend, hey, I'm, I'm anxious. Hey, I'm depressed. Hey, I hear voices in my head. I, I need help. I need medical care. And maybe people were afraid beforehand to say that because they, they, they thought that they would be judged. And so lessening some of the stigma in that area or opening a line of communication is very different than what's happened. What's happened is we have, quote unquote, normalized these very serious mental illnesses like serious bipolar disorder and untreated schizophrenia. And this has created a crisis in our country, a crisis that we quite literally opened the floodgates to when we opened the doors of those mental institutions. And all of these patients were let out. All of these patients were let out. She then goes on to write, a number of studies indicate that substance abuse greatly increases the likelihood of violent behavior within populations of mentally ill individuals, even when compared to the increased likelihood it also causes within the general population. Now, the reason I'm reading that part is for a lot of my, um, of my listeners and viewers who I love smoke weed, apparently, and, um, and were very triggered by, by what I said. Now, I didn't make that up. I'm not saying this to, to judge you. I'm saying this because this is what the science shows. This is what the data shows. This is what the studies, this is the results of the scientific studies that have shown that, that marijuana cannabis um, can trigger psychosis and is correlated to violence. And um, it, it is what it is. If we ignore it, then this is what's going to happen. If we don't ignore it, then we can have a discussion about, about what policies can be put into place, both culturally and legally, to decrease decrease the chances that that this correlation, cannabis to um, to psychosis, to violence inflicted on innocent people, that we can try to that we can try to mitigate that. We can try to prevent it. We can try to defend our communities against it. So um, just just a little just a little uh, addition, just a little piece of information, a little fun fact for those of you who have been so triggered uh, by my comments on marijuana that a number of studies have indicated that substance abuse greatly increases the likelihood of violent behavior within populations of mentally ill individuals. Notably. Amy Swearer writes, mentally ill individuals who exhibit violent behaviors become no more likely than the average population to commit acts of violence once they are adequately treated for their illness. This is consistent with the analyses of mass killers with mental illnesses that have found that psychiatric treatment was either unavailable or underutilized in virtually all cases of adult and adolescent mass murder. She writes, as one analysis of various studies concluded, it appears that persons who suffer from serious mental health illness, but who grow up in a healthy family environment, i.e. not violently victimized by family members, develop self-control and coping skills, no substance abuse, and who are able to maintain gainful employment, better able to afford living in a nonviolent neighborhood, often seem to escape any heightened risk of violence associated with mental illness. So what do we have there? If people, even people who suffer from serious mental illness, if they get treatment for it, if they do not use drugs, and if they come from a stable nuclear family, then their chances of, of being a statistic, of being one of the people who are 20 times more likely to commit a violent act because of their serious mental health issue, that's completely mitigated, and they become no more likely to commit an act of violence than a member of the general population. Does that just floor you? 
it floored me when I read this because I thought this is what we should be focusing on. We should stop talking about guns. We should, um, we should sure, harden schools and do what we can to put a bandaid on the problem while we as a society actually address this underlying cause. But this is phenomenal data. This is phenomenal data. And so it, it, it leads us back to the deinstitutionalization, which came with good intent to protect people from abuse by, by staff of these mental institutions, but also by, by government officials who perhaps institutionalized people unfairly. It was a good intent, a bad outcome. But now we see that deinstitutionalization has, has not only hurt society, it's actually hurt those with, with mental illness too, because what's happened is they have, they've now been left untreated. And when they're left untreated, since they're so much more likely um, to commit violence, they end up in prison. They end up in prison and prisons are, are, not, are not qualified to treat people with serious mental illness. That should be mental hospitals, mental institutions. In prisons, people with serious mental health illness uh, languish. They suffer. They, they have become almost 40% of the prison population. This is sad. This, this, this is really sad to see that, uh, that a policy like deinstitutionalization has led to has led to all of these things that could have been avoided that we sit here and we wonder, why do we have mass shooters now when we didn't 50 years ago? Why do we have so many suicides and overdoses now compared to 50 years ago? Well, maybe, just maybe, there was a policy, a policy change during that time that led to it. Maybe something we did changed our culture. Maybe something we did changed our laws. Maybe something happened and not arbitrarily happened. Maybe something happened as a result of deliberate political decisions and this is the consequence of it. And if we don't spend time sitting here and analyzing, well, what happened? What are these factors? What can we change? How can we try to fix this broken algorithm where troubled young men are, are committing mass murder or trying to commit mass murder, how can we stop this? If we don't try to untangle this in a clear-minded, rational way, free from political ideology, meaning stop with the gun control stuff, then we're not going to fix this. We're not going to fix this. We have, by the way, we have involuntary commitment in our country right now, but it needs reform. We, we, we all saw it with the Britney Spears thing, the conservatorship thing. That wasn't involuntary commitment at a mental institution, but it's a form of involuntary commitment um, in an outpatient way. Um, but what's happened to involuntary commitment in our nation is the standards for commitment have been raised to this almost unreachable level where um, a person must not only have a, a serious mental illness or, or suspected of having if they haven't been diagnosed yet, that person almost must also must be at imminent risk of harming themselves or others. And, and this word imminent makes it nearly impossible to institutionalize someone with a severe mental illness that is obviously going to commit violence based on their behavior or their words, um, but not going to do it at that moment. Because the word imminent means right then. Now, now, prior to the 1960s, um, you didn't need you didn't need any kind of um, you didn't need any kind of, of of imminent risk or even risk of harming others. Just mental illness would get you institutionalized. It's 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 good that we've moved on from that. We should not be institutionalizing every person who has mental illness, but we should reform. We should reform um, some of the verbiage in civil commitments to, of course, respect due process. Of course, respect due process, but also to understand that this word imminent 
in many states, in, in, the, in the, the, the statutes of many states that deal with involuntary commitment, make it impossible to commit someone who will be a threat to others, who can't take care of themselves, who without the medication that maybe they're refusing to take are at risk of deteriorating. And this, this is something that is a relatively easy fix. It also would be an easy fix for Congress to reform Medicaid and allow Medicaid dollars to pay for psychiatric beds in the state. The, the, these are not difficult. These are not difficult changes to remove the word imminent, to include someone with a grave disability who is otherwise incapacitated and unable to care for themselves, um, or even that, that is a threat to themselves or others, even if it's not at that moment. These things lead to treatment. And when, when people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar are treated, they are, not, they are not then a statistic that makes them likely to commit this violence. And by opening these floodgates of these institutions, by, by this deinstitutionalization, this is, this, is, this is something that we have played a part in, in causing. It's a hard conversation to have. It's a difficult topic. It is rife with fear, and rightly so. It's, it's rife with the threat of abuse, vulnerability to abuse. But that doesn't mean that we can't figure out a way to satisfy all of the interests, to satisfy due process rights and respect and protection of individual liberties and protecting our communities and giving people with serious mental health issues an opportunity to be contributing members of society and not just be relegated to being homeless or being in prison or being potentially someone who commits a heinous act of violence. And if we don't talk about this, then are we really committed to solving this problem or are we just going to sit here and wait for another, uh, the next mass shooting to happen and then scoff at Democrats' idea of gun control but not really present any ideas of our own? I reject that. I think we have to talk about this. Over on Locals right now, we are going to talk about President Trump's Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, who is now the equity director at Purdue University. That's right. Join us, lizwheelershow.com slash locals. If you use my promo code ACCESS, then you can get your first month free. You can watch You can watch us talk about Jerome Adams uh, for free for your first month of your annual subscription. That is lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.